Today's reading is out of Proverbs 26, 23 through 28. Like the glaze covering an earthen vessel are fervent lips with an evil heart. Whoever hates disguises himself with his lips and harbors deceit in his heart. When he speaks graciously, believe him not, for there are seven abominations in his heart. Though his hatred be covered with deception, his wickedness will be exposed in the assembly. Whoever digs a pit will fall into it, and a stone will come back on him who starts it rolling. A lying tongue hates its victims, and a flattering mouth works ruin. This is the word of God. Please be seated. Good morning. Welcome to church this morning. Uh, I, know, I know what you're all thinking. This better be quick because the Daytona 500 starts at 11. Uh, or maybe I am the only one thinking that. Yeah, not in Florida anymore. I'm in Colorado. So, uh, welcome to church. Uh, we'll go ahead and get started. Uh, we're in the midst of a series called Bringing Peace to the Culture War. And what we're looking to do in this series is reframe the way that we as a church engage with our coworkers, our friends, uh, the culture at large. What is us as a church, what posture should we have towards the culture that we live in that is mostly made up of not the church, uh, mostly made up of non-Christians? Uh, what we're looking to do is reframe the way that we typically engage with our culture, not in terms of a combative war in which we're looking to occupy and sort of take over the culture at large. That's not typically the language that the Bible uses when it describes how the kingdom of God spreads. The way it describes the kingdom of God spreading, it uses these organic metaphors, like the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed that starts out really small and then it grows into the largest seed in the garden. And that happens by us internalizing the gospel in our lives and then living it out in the world, in our words, talking about it explicitly, learning how to answer objections and answer the good questions that non-Christians have about the gospel, and in a winsome way, try and persuade and convince the world that we're actually presenting a, a really sound, really plausible, glorious way to be living. And that actually becomes winsome. So that changes the way that we engage with things that we would typically be adversarial to in our culture. When we see areas that we would disagree with, places of brokenness, now this becomes a place for us to step in and serve, to engage with people uh, in, in a way that allows them to access and understand the gospel. So we're doing this by engaging with articles from this website called eon.co. And it's a non-Christian website, although sometimes Christians write for it. And there's a, it, what they do is they pose large questions, uh, the big questions of life, or questions that we are dealing with on a social or interpersonal level. And they sort of scour the, who's doing the best writing on this topic now. Uh, so they go to different academic institutions, different sort of think tank sort of organizations, and the, different authors. They see who's doing the best writing on this topic, and they ask them to write an article on that topic. So this week we're talking about something that's very personal that we, I think, have all experienced, been a part of, done. Uh, this week we're talking about passive aggressiveness, which is fine. 
That's fine. Uh, actually, the name of the article is, honestly, it's fine. That's the title of the article, which I thought was a great title. Uh, yeah, so we're talking about passive aggressiveness. You, you know what it is when you see it, right? You, you know it when you're experiencing it. Like, ah, they're just being so passive aggressive. Why don't they just come out and say what they mean? Uh, is something you may whisper to yourself passive aggressively about someone. Um, the term passive aggressive, it, was, it actually started out as a military term in World War II. And it was used to describe soldiers that were being passive aggressive. So they would be, you know, told to do something and then they would intentionally procrastinate in doing it. Uh, it would, they would say the things that we've said when we've been passive aggressive, like, oh, I must have misunderstood the instructions. I, I'm sorry, you must not have been very clear. Uh, that's, why I'm, that's why it's taking me so long to do this, or just pay the lip service, the eye service. So it became a term in the military, uh, passive-aggressive, and then it was sort of uh, taken by uh, psychology, and it was actually a diagnosed disorder um, up until about 2004, when it was officially removed from the dsm 4 at that point. Uh, and it was removed because... It, they said that as a single symptom, it, it was deemed to be a single symptom diagnostically embedded in a larger syndromal context. So basically what they had realized when they were doing more research on passive aggressiveness and where they started to see it was this isn't just one symptom. This is something that is popping up all over the... Excuse me, this isn't just one disorder. This is a symptom that's popping up all over the place. It's infectious in all sorts of different disintegrating human relationships. Uh, and so because of that, they removed it from the dsm 4 and it, now it's just a symptom. One of the... Uh, a researcher, a psychologist in New York City, uh, it coined this phrase about passive aggressiveness. He calls it sugar-coated hostility, which I think is a great term. Just sugar-coated hostility. Hostility that goes down smooth. Uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's the, the coating on the outside of the Advil um, that makes Advil taste like candy, which is probably dangerous. Um, so here's an example. We're going to deal with an example, and this is the one that the, uh, Rebecca Roach, who is a philosophy professor at the University of London, she's the one that wrote the article that we're dealing with today, that we're engaging with. Uh, and she begins her article with this example. She says, imagine that I was planning a birthday party uh, for myself, which is kind of funny. Um, maybe a little sad. So that's not the point. Imagine she says, I I'm planning a birthday party for myself. And uh, my sister does something to offend me. And she comes to me and she apologizes and I say, it's fine. You know, it's fine. Whatever, it's fine. Uh, but then, uh, instead of actually engaging with what I was feeling, I just remove her from the Facebook chat that we were using to plan the uh, birthday party. So the sister... Uh, realizes that she's been removed from the Facebook chat, and it comes to the sister and confronts her, and is like, I, "You dropped me from the, you you dropped me from the group. Why, uh, you know, did is there something going on between us? I thought it was fine. Like I apologized. I thought it was fine. And uh, she says, she's like, and then imagine that I say, "Oh, it must have been some sort of a glitch in Facebook, you know, Russian hackers, or something." <laughs> uh, that's, it was probably just some technical difficulty, that's why you were uh, 
dropped off of the group chat. See, in that example, what we see is the difference between in what makes passive aggressiveness so different from just aggressiveness is that it creates this environment of confusion. A quote from the article, uh, the sister, who is, whose name is Fleur, which is very British, the author is very British, um, is confused. Part of her is certain that I deliberately cut her out, while another part of her wonders whether she's being oversensitive. This is what makes passive aggressiveness different from mere aggression. The passive aggressive person always leaves the back door open to where they can always sort of skirt out and evade any sort of culpability for being offensive. You're intending offense. You're intending to communicate an offense to who you're being passive aggressive towards, and yet you're trying to do so in such a way that leaves you plausible deniability. It's intended offense without the opportunity to be called out for that offense. That's the type of world that we're creating when we're being passive-aggressive. It instigates a confusion and a disharmony in our relationships. It's, uh, it, it, it's basically inauthentic. So Roach, uh, Roach captures this well in her essay. She says uh, that it's the ambiguity that it creates that actually makes passive-aggression objectionable. She says, the ambiguity of my passive-aggressive response to Floor makes it objectionable. See, I told you, that's what she thought. Uh, the ambiguity of my passive-aggressive response to Floor makes it objectionable in a way that my sweary response is not, meaning like cussing, uh, but in a British word. It deprives her of the ability to challenge me effectively about what I am conveying to her and it enables me to escape accountability for what I am conveying. So she captures both dynamics there. It, uh, it, allows, it, it creates an environment where she can't be challenged for the offense that she is communicating, and it allows her to escape any sort of confrontation that uh, she would have been able to, that they would have been caused to enter into. So it's trying to cause harm while maintaining a sort of posture of victimhood. See, the power is kept in the relationship by you being the victim. You're the one who gained the offense, and you were never offensive in return, at least on the surface. At least the sugar coating was never offensive in return. It reduces the relationship to a conversation not about truth and what's actually happening between you two, but it makes the relationship based simply upon a power dynamic, an exchange of power. So Roach actually, uh, it's, the author Roach actually concludes that it is probably the worst form of aggression. She says, she says this, if I have been caused upset, swearing enables me to express my feelings effectively at the expense of being offensive. So if you swear, you effectively express what you're feeling, but you're also being offensive, so there's that expense. Meanwhile, saying, I'm jolly angry with you, allows me to be inoffensive, but at the expense of effectively expressing my feelings. So there's this sense of, that's, this, I'm not actually communicating what I feel when I simply explicitly state my feelings. 
uh, but at least I'm not being offensive. So two sides, each with a plus and a minus. She says, by contrast, passive aggression is both offensive and a poor way of expressing your feelings. When you're passive aggressive, you're intending to be offensive to someone and you're not effectively communicating yourself. You're not allowing the person any opportunity to respond to the offense that you're bringing up. So that sort of lays out the article on passive aggression that we're looking at. What prevents us, when we're talking about passive aggression, what we're really talking about are the things that we do that prevent us from having authentic relationships with each other. The things that we do that put up barriers between ourselves so that we don't really get to know and engage with each other in a truthful and honest way. So today we're going to look at a scriptural response to passive aggressiveness. What does the Bible have to say about this? Uh, We're going to look at uh, three things. What is passive aggressiveness? Why do we do it? Why are we passive aggressive? And how do we stop? So just three things, pretty simple this morning, because we've got to be quick for the Daytona 500. Glad we're all on the same page. So the, the passage of Scripture that we're looking at today, it lays out three points. So it offers, first of all, a warning for dealing with passive-aggressive people. Secondly, it offers a warning to the passive-aggressive person. And thirdly, it offers a final conclusion where it sums up explicitly what passive-aggressiveness is, removes the veneer, in a sense. So we're going to begin with the warning for dealing with passive-aggressive people. So what should we do in response to passive-aggressive people? That's where the way it starts. And Proverbs 26, 23 to 24 says, Like the glaze covering an earthen vessel are fervent lips with an evil heart. Whoever hates disguises himself with his lips and harbors deceit in his heart. The glaze there, it's actually a particularly difficult word to translate, so I've read, I didn't translate it. Uh, But what they've concluded is that it was like a silver coating that you would put on the outside of a clay pot. And the reason that that's particularly dangerous is because if you were to sell that clay pot for its weight in silver, uh, you would have just gotten, uh, I think the term, the biblical term is played. And uh, because you've been ripped off, because it's just a coating. The silver is only a coating, and the weight of the pot is not its weight in silver. The worth of the pot is not its weight in silver. So... He equates that, that sort of deceptiveness, to fervent lips with an evil heart. Fervent is like a flaming or burning lips, sort of uh, connecting there to the the hot silver glaze that would have been put on the pot. Uh, Our words, our language, can act as that type of coating for ourselves. Our language can create a mask to disguise ourselves from each other so that we aren't actually communicating what the reality of our heart is. Our language isn't used to communicate and expose, but it's rather used to conceal and hide an evil heart. Uh, The verse continues, uh, whoever hates, whoever hates, disguises himself with his lips and harbors deceit in his heart, sort of reiterating 
or adding to the metaphor that they had established, that the writer had established, of our language, instead of being used to expose and bring transparency and bring truth, is actually being used to hide and conceal, to create a mask, to create relational distance. So that is a symptom of hatred. That is the way that hatred works. Language is being misused. So what does that sound like? That sounds like, what's wrong? And the response being, nothing, I'm just tired. Nothing, I'm just hungry. (laughs) The language isn't exposing the heart of the matter. Our responses are being used to create a shell, to create a false silver glaze around the actual offense that we may be experiencing. So, uh, following this, he, the writer offers a sort of intermediate conclusion in the midst of his argument. In Proverbs 26, 25, he says, When he speaks graciously, believe him not, for there are seven abominations in his heart. So he just comes right out and offers just a piece of advice based on this type of person that he's described. There's a person who hates, and because of that, they disguise themselves with their words. Therefore, when they speak graciously, don't believe them because it's, it's hiding seven abominations in their heart. What does that mean? That means there, there's, it's, uh, means completeness. So that it, no matter how far you keep going down in their heart, you're going to only discover more and more abominations that are being hidden, that are being concealed. So when they speak gracious to, graciously to you, know that they aren't using language the way that you think they're using language. They aren't using it to expose They aren't using it to bring truth. They're using it to disguise. They're using it to hide. Uh, So check yourself. Which coworker are you thinking of right now? Yeah, that that, that may turn on you towards the end of the sermon. Um, So next up, he turns to a warning to the deceiver. So this is a warning for who we should... the, The first was us as the... speaking as someone who's dealing with a passive-aggressive person or somebody who is uh, being deceitful with their language. This one is to the deceiver themselves. They say, Though his hatred be covered with deception, his wickedness will be exposed in the assembly. Whoever digs a pit will fall into it, and a stone will come back on him who starts it rolling. So, though his hatred has been covered with this deception, it will be exposed in the assembly. In the assembly is a way of saying that it will be exposed publicly. One day, everyone will know that this deceit was ineffectively covering an evil heart full of seven abominations. So I think it's the place that we're exposed in the assembly, because that's where exposing would happen. But I also think that it's the mechanism by which we get exposed in public, in open discourse, in honest communication, the lies inevitably become exposed. When there's one-on-one communication, there's an opportunity to be manipulative. But when it's exposed, when the, when the topic or idea is open to the public square, there's a lot of people that can now look at it. So the person who's being deceitful and manipulative is now pretty vulnerable because alternate perspectives are able to come into play. So he talks about this in terms of an inevitability of exposure. In the, in the assembly, and I would say, in a sense, because of the assembly. That's the danger and the fear. 
So it's creating a situation in which you've started the ball rolling by your lies, and it will come back on you. What goes around comes around. Finally, they offer, the writer offers a uh, concluding statement on this sort of uh, string that he puts together on his advice for dealing with this type of person. He says, in conclusion, a lying tongue hates its victims, and a flattering mouth works ruins. See, beneath the deceit of our passive aggressiveness, when you remove the veneer, it is just a hatred. Our passive aggressiveness is innately deceitful, and because of that, we are hating. And I think that we can even start to deceive ourselves, because when we reflect on the times that we've been passive aggressive, we often think uh, uh, something like this, we often think that I'm not being passive-aggressive, I just don't want to be a real jerk and cuss someone out to their face. You know, I'm not being passive-aggressive, I'm just being tactful. Right? And so we can, in a sense, so easily deceive ourselves in terms of what our passive-aggressiveness is actually doing. It is, when you boil it down, it is hatred, just like lying is hatred. So, there is a great, this is a great quote uh, from this book called Lying, um, which is written by a philosopher and uh, neuroscientist and also like very outspoken atheist. Um, his name's Sam Harris. Some of you may have heard of him. But in his book on lying, he says something that's really helpful uh, to expose why the language of hatred is not too strong. He says, And while we imagine that we tell certain lies out of compassion for others, it is rarely difficult to spot the damage we do in the process. By lying, we deny our friends access to reality. And their resulting ignorance often harms them in ways we did not anticipate. Our friends may act on our falsehoods or fail to solve problems that could have been solved only on the basis of good information. Rather often, to lie is to infringe upon the freedom of those we care about. We are leading people into darkness. We are convincing people of a relational rapport that isn't actually there. Imagine if they had to depend on you in such a way, or if you had to depend on that person in such a way. There's a rapport that when you went to lean on it, it it's not actually there. It was masked by a silver, by a silver coating. It's a form of hatred. So passive aggressiveness is uh, deceit. So followed to its ends, we were able to sort of expose that, that passive aggressiveness is, in the sense, this form of deceit. Uh, so then the question is, why do we do it? Why are we passive aggressive so frequently? So uh, the author of our essay that we're dealing with today Rebecca Roche says, Indeed, our wish to convey something potentially offensive and our fear of experiencing the discomfort and risking the confrontation associated with doing so are the reasons why we express our negative feelings and beliefs in a sugar-coated way in the first place. So what she's saying is the reason that we're passive-aggressive is because we don't want to deal with the discomfort and we don't want to deal with the, con with the confrontation that our 
that our aggressiveness could then expose. There's this fear that we're operating in of, it, of actually moving into the confrontation. So that raises another question, and, and, and it adds another uh, layer to why passive aggressiveness is so bad. Uh, that's because it removes the possibility for a confrontation to happen. It removes the opportunity for the other person to respond to your intended offense. So then you aren't able to learn anything from the, con from the conversation. You, they aren't able to bring anything new into the conversation. And you aren't able to learn anything in where you may be wrong in the conversation. There's this double, sort of, there's this double loss in passive aggressiveness because we're fearful of that confrontation. In a direct confrontation, you can be exposed. But passive aggressiveness ultimately boils down to just a total avoidance of any of our wrongness. Uh, Dr. Tori Higgins is a, uh, he, he's, he works at the Motivation Science Center at Columbia University. He, he's a research professor there. And he says that they've been able to link passive aggressiveness with particular personality corollaries. And one of them he describes like this. He says, some of the people being demeaned as passive aggressive are in fact being extremely careful not to commit mistakes. A strategy that has been successful for them. A personality quality he calls prevention pride a kind of native caution in the face of new challenges, an effort to avoid all errors. So, passive aggressiveness then, this fear of actually moving into a confrontation where we could be openly corrected, he ties back to this term, which I think is a great term, prevention pride. We're trying to keep all of the power in our court that way no one could speak into something that we may not be seeing. Nobody could call out our wrongness because that feeling of being wrong, that's the real thing that we're looking to avoid. We aren't looking to communicate truth or we aren't looking to communicate the accuracy of an offense. We're merely looking to shelter ourselves from that experience of feeling wrong. That way we can feel right, we can feel self-righteous, we can feel victimized uh, rather than actually being an engaged participant in the, con in the confrontation or the conversation. It's ultimately our pride, our prevention pride, that causes us to be passive-aggressive. That's what we're doing. When the author Roach says, passive, the passive-aggressive person never quite takes the blame. They never quite discover their own wrongness. See, that's the danger of passive aggressiveness. We're going through the world in this behavior that we've cultivated and learned, a skill that we've honed, where we can move through every relationship without actually receiving any helpful input from those relationships. We're able to structure every confrontation in which we're, not, in which we're never wrong. We're never the one that had to learn anything. Passive aggressiveness is a tool that we use to do that. So there's a particular danger in this. Catherine Schultz was the author of a book in 2011, it's called Being Wrong, and she uh, presented a TED talk of the same title, Being Wrong. And 
what she discusses is we all have this innate sense of rightness. And then she asks, uh, I'm just going to ask what she asked, uh, what does it feel like to be wrong? Any answers? What does it feel like to be wrong? <laughs> I don't know, that's, <laughs> that's awesome. Uh, yeah, I don't want to say because I might be wrong. Embarrassed. Small, humbling. Yeah, exactly. Those, those feelings, yeah, like humbling is nice retrospectively. Humbling is not fun when you're being humbled. Uh, but the great point that she makes is that's not what it feels like to be wrong. That's what it feels like to discover that you're wrong. Because being wrong, we're wrong all the time. And we don't even know it. We just move through life being wrong. And so she makes this excellent point where she says being wrong in that sense actually just feels like being right. You walk through life wrong about lots of your opinions, about lots of your thoughts, just, just not factually true, and yet you don't feel any different from being right. That's our default state. We typically, in the present moment, just feel right about all of our opinions. So she says this internal sense of rightness that we all experience so often is not a reliable guide to what is actually going on in the external world. And when we act like it is and we stop entertaining the possibility that we could be wrong, well, that's when we end up doing things like dumping 200 million gallons of oil into the Gulf of Mexico or to torpedoing the global economy. This was 2011. Those were very topical. Uh, but there, there's... We can't imagine anything going wrong now, so. Uh, we can be typically operating out of falsehoods. And when we're structuring our confrontations so that we're never able to be called out for them, then we're insulating ourselves from reality. Our view of the world is reduced to merely our pride and what our pride can handle, rather than dealing with the world as it is, rather than dealing with reality as it is. That, in order to get to that reality, it requires the assembly, it requires open confrontation to do that. This is, this is what's being exposed in that proverb that we had read, where it says, whoever digs a pit will fall into it, and a stone will come back on him who starts rolling it. You don't get to just start living in your own reality. You don't get to just function in your own wrongness without it finally coming back onto you. Passive aggressiveness is harmful to the relationship that you're in, and it's, it's harmful to your view of the world. So, why do we do it? Fear of wrongness, frequently. Not that there aren't other reasons, but I think that that's a really helpful one. So, how to stop. How do we stop being passive-aggressive and learn to be forthright? Well, the answer lies in the Proverbs that we've been looking at. So, Proverbs 26, 25 says, When he speaks graciously, believe him not, for there are seven abominations in his heart. His heart is your heart. When you speak graciously, don't believe yourself. When you're so certain of your argument, when you're so certain that the offense that you're feeling is true and accurate, 
don't believe yourself. There has to be this sense of doubt, this sense of understanding when dealing with your own thoughts, the sense of trusting what the Bible says about your heart, which is when you keep going down and you keep digging down, you're just going to find more and more abominations. So that's the thing that you have to move through life with and discern reality with. So when you're coming up on wrongness, don't be surprised. Why would you be? Of course wrongness will be exposed, and that's a good thing. That's a benefit. You need the wrongness to be exposed. So how do we stop being passive-aggressive? We stop fearing wrongness and we start anticipating it. We start hoping for our wrongness to be exposed. But that takes a particular type of heart. That takes a person who it hasn't just thought about the gospel, but has learned how to think with the gospel. So that they're able to say, the gospel entails that I am, uh, as far deep as I go in my heart, I'm just going to find abominations. I'm so far removed from the one who has determined reality and set reality in its place. I'm so far removed from that person that it, that it took Jesus coming and dying for me just so I could be reconciled to reality in some way. That's how distant I am. That's how, that's how base my heart is. That's how full of abominations I am, how much wrong I'm full of. That type of a heart is able to humbly move in the world. But there's another aspect that has to be understood as well, which removes us from the fear of being wrong. Because in the midst of those abominations, the fact that it took that the cost was so high that it required Jesus dying for us that we may be reconciled to the one who holds reality. Jesus did die. He did love us in such a way that we may be reconciled to him, that we may come into an understanding of truth and reality, that we may know God in a way that we're able to move through his world wisely. When you're able to internalize the gospel like that, it puts you in a position where you can openly confront in, an, in a not passive-aggressive, but in an actually aggressive way that isn't arrogant. Because how could you be arrogant? You know you don't know everything. You know that others will have insights that you need. And your wrongness won't crush you. Because you also know that... It, because you also understand that the love that God has demonstrated for you in Jesus can hold you, and that there's nothing he doesn't know about your wrongness. And his is the opinion that ultimately matters, while others don't. So that your wrongness can be exposed. And in your wrongness being exposed, it's not a threat to who you are. It's God's grace in bringing you into more truth. It's God's grace so you can live more openly and more honestly and more authentically. That, a person who's internalized that, that creates a really risky type of lifestyle that that person lives, where they're frequently sharing what they actually think and frequently receiving correction. They're able to gain a perspective and they're able to learn with such rapid speed and gain wisdom about things at such a quick rate because they aren't hiding behind some veneer that they've created that they know everything. They aren't creating some world that they can live in that allows them to think that they just safely know everything. 
That's uh, why passive aggressiveness is so harmful. And what it reveals about us is the, that pride that we operate in that keeps us from our wrongs being exposed. But thinking with the gospel of how that applies to our interpersonal relationships, to the ways that we deal with each other, it frees us up to live in, in a more risky, more aggressive way, more open way uh, that can really help a lot of our relationships, really prevent a lot of hardship. So I'll take a few questions and then we'll wrap up with prayer and communion. Can you offer some guidance on how to set healthy boundaries tactfully without being passive aggressive? Yeah, so the Proverbs also say a fool uh, gives full vent to their heart, but a wise man holds it back. Uh, so that means that the goal then isn't to just be constantly venting whatever we're feeling. Not only is that impractical, uh, but it, it's uh, because I don't know how you could walk around and just be constantly venting whatever you're feeling. Uh, I don't know who lucidly feels like that. Uh, but it's also irresponsible for your relationships. There are relationships that require levels of openness in order to function in a healthy way. But there are other relationships that when they're given that level of openness, all of a sudden it becomes really, really dysfunctional. Uh, the show The Office is about a workplace where everybody treats each other like family. And it doesn't really work. <laughs> this is too much openness. TMI. That's a quote from the show. Um, so in terms of guidance on how to set healthy boundaries, I think it means checking your motivations. Are you being tactful in order to avoid correction? Or are you being tactful because you think it will be more helpful in getting at the truth of the matter? Is your tact about maintaining power in the relationship? Or is your tact about seeking truth together in the relationship? I think that'd be a helpful sort of watershed uh, that you could look, you know, help sort that out. Okay, next question. If I'm the recipient, the recipient of passive-aggressive behavior, how should I confront the perpetrator? Uh, aggressively, but not arrogantly. Um, if you're the recipient of passive-aggressive behavior, there's another aspect of this. When we look at what's motivating passive-aggressiveness, it's this fear of wrongness. So one place to start may be, why would this person be afraid of being wrong in front of me? Have I created a situation in which wrongness is, is intolerable? Have I, have I somehow communicated that their growth isn't important, but just the way that they respond to me is important? That may be a helpful soul-searching. Because when we understand what's motivating passive aggressiveness, that doesn't just help us to understand how we should then not be passive aggressive. It helps us to understand what environment can we create that, uh, that cultivates openness. Uh, so I would start with that sort of introspection. Am I creating a space where it's actually safe to be wrong in front of me? Am I the type of person that can be told they're wrong? Or am I the type of person that, uh, if you were to tell me, I was wrong, it would be too high risk for the relationship. Uh, I think that th that may be a helpful way to uh, 
uh, begin thinking of addressing that person. And then I think uh, clearly and openly and taking into account uh, the right timing. I mean, the, the Proverbs are so difficult because they, uh, they offer uh, guidelines is a better term, right, than rules. Uh, and learning to apply them is not, not particularly easy. Uh, but I think checking your motivations and allowing uh, and considering, am I creating the space where this would be a safe conversation, where we could actually seek the truth together? All right, next question. My spouse, underlined, which is actually the name of the book they're writing, because uh, you underlined book titles. That was funny. <laughs> My spouse has been passive-aggressive for years due to deeply entrenched self-protection and survival. I've tried to get through to my spouse for several, for, for several years without effect. What should I do? I don't have a silver bullet uh, for this situation. I think that we've exposed quite a bit of what passive aggressiveness is made up of, but I also think that it can take a long time to peel back the layers. Passive aggressiveness is what allows our relationships to uh, start to sort of spiral and build up these tensions that last such a long time. Because when you're being passive aggressive, you're removing, what you're doing is you're creating a problem and you're removing the information necessary to fix the problem. So in our passive aggressiveness, we're constantly trapping each other. We're, we're intending offense by what we're saying, and then we're removing the opportunity to respond in an intelligent way to that offense. And so those things can build up, and those tensions can build up for such a long time. Uh, and therefore, I think to get to the bottom of those things will take a long time. This isn't a matter of just solving passive aggressiveness. Passive aggressiveness, passive aggressiveness is a symptom. Uh, and there's something else happening beneath this. Uh, in terms of what you can do, uh, I think a, a helpful start is understanding that if you were to climb to the bottom of your heart, you would only find complete abomination as well. And uh, a second would be to seek out help. Uh, seek out help in our counseling center. Um, hopefully that would, be, that would be helpful. Because to, to tease out all of that, looking out just your own eyes. It may take the assembly looking in to expose the truth of the matter, which we need, and, and by God's grace, you'll receive. I hope so. Uh, no more questions, right? Right. All right. Let's, uh, let's pray together, and then we'll take communion. It's an open communion, which means... You don't have to be a member of L2 to uh, take communion. Uh, but we, we do ask that you would be a Christian. Because taking communion is saying to the rest of us, it's a public testimony, saying that I have internalized the gospel. I have seen that truth and I'm, I'm, I'm wanting to live with it in my life, live through it, make that the framework by which I live my life so that I'm able to see that I am full of seven abominations 
And the good news is that, that God didn't abandon me in that, uh, but that he broke his body, which is the broken bread, and he poured out his blood, which is the wine. Uh, and in remembering that, uh, during our time of communion, I, I hope that we, would, that we would be able to better apply this to our relationships, that we might be more willing to be quickly broken for the sake of our relationships, that we might be willing to be called wrong for the sake of our relationships, uh, for the sake of our wisdom in the world. So with that, let's pray. Father, I pray that we would grasp how deeply you know us, how deeply offensive we've been to you, and yet how much you've stuck with us. Father, I pray that we would see that in uh, a deeper understanding of your gospel, a deeper understanding of Jesus on the cross. Father, I pray that that would move into our relationships. Lord, that we would, over this next week, be able to spot passive aggressiveness where we maybe just brushed it off before. And Lord, that we would be able to follow that down to our hearts to see what's really going on here. Uh, Why am I more concerned with what the person I'm speaking to thinks of me? Why am I more concerned with the mistakes I could be potentially making than I am with seeking your truth, the one who holds the world together? Father, help expose those things in our hearts. Let us not be insulated by silver veneers that we put on our lives. But Father, please expose it. Please expose the abomination in us, the wrongness in us, that way we may move into discovering truth and live wisely in it and authentically in it, creating real relationships. Uh, Lord, that your glory may be made known in our city. Father, we lift this up in Jesus' name. Amen. You can find more audio as well as study questions and sermon notes at l2church.com. If you have any comments or questions, feel free to shoot us a message through the contact form on our website. Thanks for listening. Thank you.